Listen, Dr. King, I got to tell you something that uh, you're going to find very humorous. <laughs> About 20 years ago, my phone rang and it was an unknown number. And I'm a little ghetto. So <laughs> I normally answer my phone with like a yo or like a who this. And I answered my phone and I said, who this? And there was a voice, there was this, there was this soft kind of fragile voice that said, uh, hello, I'm looking for Kirk Franklin. And I said, yo, who this is? And I said it again. Oh my God. And she says, uh, this is Coretta Scott King. <laughs> who says, who this? To Coretta Scott King. I'm sure she found it humorous. She laughed, but I almost peed on myself. Cause who who says that to Coretta Scott King? So I'm sorry for what I said to your mama. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, my name is Kirk Franklin. And I come to give you good words. Let's go. Is this incredible Good Words family today to have the daughter of one of the most well-known cultural figures in the world, continuing the charge of her late parents, Dr. Martin Luther King and Coretta Scott King, I guess lives in the legacy while forging her own path as an activist, global thought leader, minister and CEO of the Martin Luther King Jr. Center for Nonviolent Social Change, and just a great friend. I love the raspiness of her voice. She said like she's going to break you off a sermon any minute. <laughs> she's going to let you know that you don't want no smoke with, with Dr. King. is because I'm on fire at any time. Please welcome to Good Words, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Bernice A. King. going on, Black Queen? I appreciate you putting that A in my name. That's important. Come on, why? Tell me why you like that. Well, there, there are two reasons. One, I was named after both of my grandmothers. My mother's uh, mother's name is Bernice. My father's mother's name is Alberta. And my middle name is Albertine. Okay. But then God gave me a revelation uh, one what did time. What say? When I was flying during the King holiday time period. You know, because I, I was wrestling with, you know, I wrestled for a long time with this king identity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he just said to me, you know what? Your father displayed what it really means to be a king in the earth from the kingdom perspective. Mm. And your father was one who I sent with that name mm -hmm. to represent what that looks like in culture. He said, now your responsibility is to challenge people to be a king like your father. So your middle initial, B-E, uh, the first two letters of my first name, then A and King. So if you check me out on Facebook, for instance, on my fan page, it's Be a King. Be a King. Be a King. I love it. And so, and so that's and, what- And how ironic in a few weeks, we'll be looking at, no, just a week from now. Uh, what is it called? Woman is King. Woman is King. The, the, the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. You have been a very powerful black woman for generations and every facet that you stand in from politics to spiritual to academia. What do you do for fun? <laughs> you know, that's funny because it, it's sometimes it's hard for me to have fun. I was so serious for so long, but I, I finally learned to laugh at myself and laugh at a lot of other things. Uh -huh. uh, so I, I, I would say first, the first thing I do, I spend a lot of time with my first cousins, uh, my father's brother and sister's daughters. Spend a lot of time with them. We, you know, we play games. I love board games. There's a game that I play with another group of older women who like to talk a lot of trash. The name of the game is Screw Your Neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Uh, so so it's one of those board games that everybody's going for themselves. And the key is to literally do your neighbor, the one next to you in. Uh, it's a real fun game. Um, you know, before the pandemic, I like to go bowling. Uh, I used to skate, but I can't do it anymore because of my knees. But I love the beach. And then finally, 
there's nothing like, you know, a blue lights in the basement party. And if I can't get to a party, Ooh. I love to turn on the radio at certain times and hear them yes. mixing it up because I used to, yes. believe it or not, I used to mix um, in high school going into college. My brother Dexter was a DJ and I tried to follow in his footsteps. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's let that breathe for a minute. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Bernice A. King just let us know that she used to be a DJ back in the day. Yes. And she used to spin the ones and twos. So, you know, we got to ask her, what was your DJ name? I didn't have a name. I just went by BK. Honestly, but you know, though, that's dope. I love it. Now, let's stay in this fun space for a minute. What were some of your favorite records to spin? Like, what were some old school jams? Oh, God, you're calling me up now. What are some of your personal joints that you love? You know, you, I can only do it when the music's on. Um, but the meeting in the this? ladies' room, you know the meeting in the ladies' room? Oh, Climax. 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 They have two songs. They sound just Climax. Like- uh, meeting in the ladies' room, and what's the other one? Y'all, she just shaded that group. She said they got yeah. two songs, and they both sound alike. She just shaded them. <laughs> and I would mix some things with rock. rock oh, you listen to rock, rock, playing the rock. Don't stop. Yes. Yes. I'm trying to think of the song that she mixed with that. That I mixed with that. This is so good. I wonder if I could mix Freakazoid with that. Freakazoid. What you know about these old school records? <laughs> I love them. This is crazy. Nostalgic. I love it. I Look, I want to go back to those days all the time. <laughs> Me too. You don't understand. I used to break dance and I used to be at the skating oh, rink wow. break dancing. Yeah. Now, are oh, you still wow. a music lover? I, I love music. I just don't listen to it like I used to. You know, I've gotten on this silence vibe. You know, I've been kind of mm. tuning out all the noise because I've been dealing with a lot of noise a long time. I used to pull up to the church. They knew mm. when I was coming because they were there. <laughs> they said, that's Bernice. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And my, my mother used to always tell us, turn down that boom to boom. But yeah, that's what my mama called it. She called it that boom to boom. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we, we, we are able to experience that the legendary Dr. Bernice yeah. E. King got a little ratchet in her. She got a little yeah, hood yeah. in it. Let me tell you this. So when I was in high school, I dated a guy from What's his ninth name? to twelfth grade. What's his, name? his name was Joe Dennis. Joe Dennis. And and he was one of the star football players, played linebacker. And he lived in Bowen Homes. If anybody listening know anything about Atlanta and Bowen Homes, it was one of the housing projects. I hung out in Bowen Homes <laughs> all the time <laughs> with him. Now, not not against the people, but I would make a different decision today. But back then, you know, every one of us, let's be honest. What, what do we call them? We want a, a, a reformed thug. Is that what it is? Yeah, yeah, yes, yes, yeah, yes, yes, yes. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, I got to ask you this question, though. How were you able to hang out with the other kids and and to let your ratchet side show with all of the legacy that followed you everywhere you went. Like that, that just had to be traumatic. Well, yeah, but you know what? My mother raised us with balance, you know? She didn't mm. want us to have to feel the pressure of being the children of. Uh, and I remember so often she would have to always say to us, you don't have to be your father and you don't have to be me. In my case, she would say, but whatever you do in this life, be your best self. And, and so it took a lot of the pressure off because we had our own internal pressure that we were creating. So I conducted myself in a certain way. You know, I made Hanging sure I carried myself. Were, yeah, exactly. Uh, I tell people <laughs> all the time, because people always say, did you ever do any weed or anything? I said, I never, ever, ever, ever touched weed. You never now, smoked I any around, weed? I never smoked weed. I mean, I was around it. But I never smoked it. But I told people, I said, no, I just drank. I didn't I didn't fool with any What'd you <laughs> any drink? What, what was your favorite little drink, Dr. King? My first drink, my first drink was that cheap whiskey, MD 2020. <laughs> <laughs> Come on! <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, she a real one. She a real one. Yeah, it was the MD 2020. I remember I had a friend now. I, I, we were having a party across the street from the church <laughs> at the Monty King Community Center. And the youth Wait a minute, hold on, hold on, hold up. Wait a minute. What was the name of the community center? 
<laughs> Martin Luther King Jr. Community Center. So we were having a party. And my friend, may he rest in peace now, Edward Bugs, he was uh, about a couple of years older than me. He would always go get the MD-2020 for me. Oh, I love so this. When the party was going on, we had to make sure he got that MD-2020. <laughs> At a party in a building that got your daddy's name on it. And the church on. party on top of that. <laughs> but it got your daddy's name on it. It got your daddy's name okay. Well, I didn't know this is, better. You know what I'm saying? I'm just living. <laughs> is, so, so what is it like when you drive by community centers in America and every community center in the hood got your daddy name on it? Like, how was that for you? You know, it's an honor, but it troubles me that it always has to just be in certain kinds of neighborhoods. You know, we got to put greater investment in those communities and build them up. Uh, but it's an honor. I mean, we've lived with this for so long. I mean, it's been a normal part of our life. You know, I was born into family. Yes. And so that's all I've ever known. I've not known anything else. But again, it's the way I, my mother raised us. We didn't have bodyguards. You know, we did normal things. We lived in a working class neighborhood. And so when I see his name, it's like, I won't say it's kind of normal or commonplace for me. But I sometimes I can forget, you know, wow, mm. Mm. that's that's my daddy. <laughs> you know, when I leave my house and I go anywhere near downtown, I'm going to pass Martin Luther King exit two to three times. Yeah. Yes. 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 And of course, I work at the King Center as the CEO. So, you know, it's right here with me constantly. And then when I go out of town, I'm very conscious, though when I'm out of town, of looking for, is there Martin King Street? Wow. Or Boulevard, or a road. Wow, wow, wow. Do you know the lady that adopted me used to tell me the story? I was four years old, 1974. There was a special that was on television about your dad. And the lady that adopted me told me that I said to her, when I grew up, I want to preach. Mm. And my introduction to the first example of a servant of faith was being inspired by your father. When when you hear those type of stories, does it get overwhelming? Do you sometimes feel depleted as a human being that nobody's ever asking, how are you? What are you doing? Do you ever feel that way? Not in recent times. You know, I guess that has to do with maturing. But there was a time period where, yes, I resented it. I'd pour my heart and soul out uh, speaking. I've been speaking since I was 17. I'm 59, so that's 42 years. Mm. And I would pour my heart and soul, soul out when I would speak, then when I would preach. And the first thing somebody would do when they would come up to me is say something about my dad. I'm like, I just poured my heart and soul out. What about me? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yes. And I went through that over and over again. But now, you know, I understand it. You know, I get it uh, because I have that kind of respect for him and really wish he were here like physically with us. But now it, it doesn't bother me like that. What, what depletes me more so now is when people disregard the fact that he does have children still living and breathing and not recognize the sensitivity around things like every time, you know, people want to talk about him and they want to show all these pictures, you know, mm. we are a living, breathing family. And having to, you know, process that over and over again is a lot. Wow. So it's, it's things like that that really deplete me. Or they do things as if you're not in the room or connected. It's like, wait a minute, you all, you're talking about my dad and I'm, you're just treating me like I'm just everybody else in this room. Never considered that. So in, in those moments, it feels kind of awkward and weird yes. to me. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. You know, I've never thought about it like that. And please feel free to let me know whenever you want to pivot from from even me asking this question. I want to respect every aspect of who you are as a human being. When you said what you just said, as a young girl, when you first experienced in the media imagery mm. of that moment of your father, how did you process that as a young girl growing up? 
my entire processing, once I began to understand things, I started processing things through the, the lens of something being taken away from me. Um, I, and I started getting angry. Mm. The anger eventually turned to bitterness. The bitterness eventually had moments of rage and outbursts. Um, and, you know, the targets usually are the people closest around you, whoever's right yes. there in the space, yes. you yes. know. And, and so it was it was very difficult for me because it would, all those triggers would go off. Because I remember when he was first assassinated and my mother tried to explain it to me about him going to, to live with, the, with God and he won't be able to talk to you anymore. Um, and, uh, he, you know, he's, he's a spirit now. And I asked her, you know, after we, as we were leaving the cemetery, what is a spirit? And she didn't know how to answer that question to a five-year-old. All she knew was maybe if I reach out and hug her, I can convey something. So she just put her arms around me and said, mommy loves you. But it wasn't enough at that time. So I went inward and I never talked about everything that was going on. And then afterwards, my uncle was found mysteriously in his pool. He was like my surrogate father. Yes. And so yes. my mother tells me that when we got the news about him, I just blurted out, my mother said, and said I'm not going to any more funerals. Mm. And so I was six then. But again, I, I just kept everything inside. Then at 11, 11 years of age, my grandmother was shot while playing the Lord's Prayer at church. Wow. And thankfully, I was not present. Um, because I don't know how devastating that would have been for, for me. Wow. And my mother was supposed to wake us up that morning for church, and she was an hour late. Had she not been an hour late, I probably would have been in that service when it happened. Wow. So that was God, you know, kind of making sure that I was protected. But all of this I held on to, you know, and I just got, I got so angry at the world, at everybody. And I, I remember cussing adults out. I, I would just literally, like, cuss about. <laughs> Uh, and one time in my mid-20s, uh, we went to see Mississippi Burning, you know, about uh, yes. three Mississippi I remember that movie. guys, yes. yes, that were a part of the, the voting rights era. And yes. they were murdered. And at the end of that movie, I was so enraged. And my boyfriend at the time, my God, he said, I couldn't even calm you down, you were, you were out of control. That's just how much I was carrying and so angry. And after that movie is when I recall having these deep feelings of hate towards white people, wow. and especially white men. Wow. And wow. Uh, it took me some years to get through that. Now, I was cordial because I was raised a certain way, but internally, yes. I had these feelings going on. And James yeah. Robeson, who you would know, James mm -hmm. Robeson on TBN, he invited me to a show in 2000. So this was in 2000. Now, Mississippi Burning was out in what year? It was the, the late 80s. It was late 80s, early 90s. Uh-huh. So you're talking about probably 10 years where I carried this. And I went on the James Robeson show. And uh, we were talking about dad. You know, some questions around my dad growing up without my father, the experience and all that. And in the middle of it, he just said, can I give you a hug? Now, inside of me, I was like, hell no. <laughs> White man. I love mm. <laughs> but, you know, I love again, it. I was trained well. We're recording. And, you know, this is going to be shown to the public. <laughs> and so I said, I love sure. So he gave me a hug. And literally, I kid you not, it's one of the most genuine hugs. I ever received in my entire life. Mm. And it just started a process of kind of softening some of that inside of me towards white people. And all of a sudden I started seeing these nice gestures happen from white men. Probably was happening before, but I was close to it because of my emotion. Because mm. that's what emotions yes. do. They lock you up and lock you down and yes. you know you shut it off. But this opened me back up and I'm in a whole different space obviously now. Nowadays, I know you see it even yourself, that more people of color are very open about counseling and therapy. And we see so many people that see it as a positive where historically 
in our community. We were not open and quick to run to get psychological therapy for our trauma mm-hmm. and our pain. And I know that it wasn't part of the normal culture that you were mm-hmm. raised in at that time. So what was the journey through that anger and grief and all of the loss that you experienced to get you where you are? If, even, if, even if you're still on your journey, was it ever recommended for you to see a therapist? Yeah, my mom, in fact, got all of us counseling when daddy first was assassinated. Mm, that's great. Um, that's great. So I will credit her with doing that initially. It just was not followed through on. And and that's what should have happened. But she was so, you know, consumed with, you know, the mission and yes. purpose that she had. Yeah. So I, I understand that. But as I got into university, I went to Spelman, graduated with a BA degree, and then I went to Emory University for a doctorate of jurisprudence, which is a law degree, and also a Master of Divinity in theology school. So it was a joint degree program. And while I was there, I was just struggling really bad with a lot of these issues around being the daughter of Dr. King and all the anger, everything was coming up. So I started my first counseling during that time period because it was affecting my coursework, especially in law school. So I think between that counseling, also going through some clinical pastoral education classes in theology school, I had to process through some things. And then from time to time, since that period of time, which would have been in my mid to late 20s, periodically I would go get counseling. Beautiful. But more importantly, I think my spiritual walk has been extremely helpful. And my mom, because I did eventually start sharing some things with my mom. My mom would pray with me from time to time. Mm. She would encourage me quite a bit. And I had circles of people who I could process things with. So I balanced it with the professional help, with safe spaces, with friends, with my mother, and then just my personal walk. And if I might be frank, the Holy Spirit has been very important in my life. And we don't talk about the Holy Spirit a lot. We use the name of Jesus. Amen. We kind of deny the Holy Spirit a lot, but me and the Holy Spirit have a lot of communion and fellowship. Yeah. And he has really helped me with so many things, looking at the life of Christ and helping me to understand who I am in Christ, helping me to understand some of the things that Jesus taught us. And it has just been tremendously helpful. And then being in ministry, I mean, there's accountability for me. When I stand in that pulpit, I'll give you a perfect example. When my sister died, my mother died in 2006, January 30th. 16 months later, my sister just Failed. Suddenly, just she just failed and she died. And that was 2007 May. I was very angry with God. And I, I even said at her memorial, I said, I know people say you don't question God, but I have questions. I'm not mm-hmm. questioning his wisdom, his expertise, his godness, if we want to call it that. But I do have questions because this is not adding up for me. Yes. And In that journey, the Holy Spirit helped me to understand some things. Didn't give me everything, but gave me enough to give me the peace that I needed. But during that time period, I remember Bishop Long used to call me to get me to preach. And I was, I dodged him. I didn't even tell him what was going on. Wow. Because I was too embarrassed as a preacher, minister, you know, and people expecting me because I portray this strength. You know, that I'm handling it, <laughs> you know, so I'm dodging and I, I'm not going to preach, Bishop, because I don't want to put this anger on people because I'm angry. with can God. I tell I you, Can I tell you that that's something that bothers me about our community is that we do not have a safe place to be honest. And so we have to pretend for people mm-hmm. and to people that we are always on it. And I'm telling you, I think that's one of the biggest demises of Christianity and oh, our society yeah. is that there's not a healthy place because other people that subscribe to our faith go through it. And they don't see nobody else being honest. So they either question their salvation, they question their walk with God, or they privately die. And I'm telling you, this pisses me off about Western Christianity. And we've got to find a way to tear that construct down so that we can have a human process. But I just wanted to say that, but please go back to you. Yeah, I was just saying, I just, I refused to preach at that time because I didn't Uh want the anger in Uh me to be spewed out with the people because that stuff can, you know, spirit 
the spirit. It can spread. Yes. Um, and I didn't want to be guilty of that. What did you understand through all of this loss and tragedy? What was revealed to you about all of this trauma you were experiencing and every time you turned around, people you loved, you were losing? You know, it's hard to explain this to a kid, but to an adult, um, for me, number one, I've come to understand the sovereignty of God and mm. that my experience and journey here on earth is not about me. I'm here for a higher and greater purpose. And I am not the master of that, the creator of that, the designer of that. You know, I participate, yes, but ultimately it's God's plan and purpose. And so while I may not understand it because I know God doesn't make a mistake, that he's doing something masterfully that involves more than just me, Yes. then I was okay with it. And I know there's something greater in all of this that I will never understand, but I'm your vessel. I'm a part of your ultimate plan and purpose. And it ain't about me. I participate, but this ain't about me. I always say to people, as much as I would have loved to have my father here, there's so many things that I'm missing because he's not here. No matter what I missed out on, at the end of the day, I still would not have it any other way. The fact that my father's life was sacrificed and he had to be assassinated, I wouldn't trade it because uh, I imagined the world without Dr. King uh, and the process uh, that he went through. I, I, we would be cheated out of a lot of stuff. So again, it's uh, not about me. It's about what we gained in the process as a humanity. And we're still gaining. Uh, and so a lot of times when people face these tragedies, which are difficult to deal with personally, but I think a lot of times there's even purpose in that. Yes. As angry as we are, as wrong, as unjust as some, because it was unjust for my father. He didn't do anything to anybody. It was unjust right. for him to be killed the way right. he was killed, how he was killed, right. when he was killed, everything. But at the end of the day, there was a higher purpose that God was bringing out of all of this. And even those who have experienced this, you know, in our community, um, they've lost sons and brothers and, you know, daughters even, et cetera. You know, God is doing something greater. George Floyd should not have lost his life, period. Mm, I hear but where he you're did. going. But that tragedy, God brings good out of yes. stuff. And it's unfortunate that the family has to suffer the pain of it. But if they would just understand the greater purpose involved in, in all of this stuff. And I tell people, look, for me, this is not for them, but this is for me. I said, look, I'll deal with my pain. I'll manage that. You know, I'll go through the processes because it, it doesn't end. I mean, my dad's been gone 55 years next year. It doesn't end. It gets better, but it doesn't end. You know, that was still traumatic. Yes. The trauma still somewhere embedded in my body and imprinted in my mind in different ways. But I'll manage that. To me, I know something greater came from this. So that's the way that I look at things. He knows how to give you just enough to make it through this stuff and, and bring out the greater purpose. And ladies and gentlemen, with that, we're going to take a quick break. And we're back. What do you think, Dr. King, is the most frequent misinterpretation of your father's message and his politics? Well, I think people misunderstand his nonviolent philosophy and methodology. I think they think it's some kind of weak, passive way of dealing with evil and injustice. And nothing could be further from the truth. It's very strong. It's very powerful. It's very transformative. You know, I always challenge people to really study the whole king, not the parts that you've heard sound bites from, but really study. He wrote books. And when you really study him, you will understand the context of that nonviolence and how strategic it was and how powerful it was in transforming the South. I mean, yeah, we still have issues today. But it's nothing yes. like it was back then. 
you know, they had some, you know, semblance sincere in there. But back then, it was harrowing for everybody that looked like us. I mean, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. when you couldn't even travel, I can travel across the United States of America right now in my car. Do it all the time in Alabama, you know, uh, Georgia. Yeah, and I can stop at a convenience store. I can use the restroom. I can purchase some goods. They had to pack bags, pack the lunch, and they would have to travel all the way till they got to those places, you know, like in the Green Book that you talked about where mm-hmm. there was refuge. Yes, so yes. it was a whole different world. Yes. So people need to know what transformed that was love and action. That's really what nonviolence is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's really a whole mindset of love, you know, a body of love, a speech of love, and a strength of love that challenged all of that ugly and evilness and caused it to transform and bring about change. Now, it's not over because it has to be constant. Oh, no. Oh, you no. have to apply good all the time because evil ain't going nowhere. It's going to always be around. No. Paul said it. Well, you know, even right now, laws continue to be passed and make it more and more difficult to even engage in civil disobedience. Like, prime example, there are states where it is legal for drivers to hit protesters with their right. cars in 2022. So right. how do we, Dr. King, continue uh, the charge and conviction of change but still through nonviolence, because sometimes the conversation of nonviolence, especially with younger urban Americans, it's like, listen, man, we love Dr. King. We we yeah, we, we, we love Malcolm, but but we're not gonna turn the other cheek. We just not doing it in 2023. So how do we we find a way to continue this nonviolent charge, even in a climate of laws that still are not beneficial to us? So first of all, we have to understand nonviolence resists. It, it does resist. I think people don't realize it resists. It doesn't just sit there and take. The difference between the approach of violence and nonviolence, violence has no outcomes. Nonviolence has outcomes. Violence is just mm-hmm. a descending spiral that reaps more violence, bitterness, aggression, all that kind of stuff. Nonviolence brings about civil rights, voting rights, Fair Housing Act, and other things. And it has to be perpetual. It's not about, okay, we did it one time. It's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle of engagement. In the movement, they had strategy planning attached to action. We have action with no strategy and no plan today. And Mm. that's where the problem is. I love it. I love it. And, And see, that's why you are still a relevant activist. What is the thread that even you see between the civil rights movement of your father's era or even the activism of your youth and where we are now with uh, movements like Black Lives Matter. What are some of the commonalities? But also, help me, Dr. King, understand even some of the differences. So I think the, the commonalities is we're still trying to dismantle systemic racism. You know, it's still about Black equality or inequality for that fact. Um, it, you know, the similarities, the threads is young people engaged in direct action. That was happening then, it's happening now. And the seeking of legislative or policy change. Those are some of the threads. What, what I think where we're seeing the, the, the differences is the leadership model. The new generation feels it needs to be decentralized. My opinion is learn from the movement that there was leadership. Mm-hmm. And so even if you want decentralized leadership, everything, even in nature, has leadership protocols. Because if you operate absent leadership, you end up with chaos. Yes. You know, leadership is almost, leadership has a lot to do with vision, whether that be five different leaders, but they're speaking the same messaging. Because if you don't have that clear vision and articulating what the goal is and what we're trying to accomplish. And then what is the discipline? That's what nonviolence is. What is the discipline that's going to get us there? And what are the strategies that we're going to put in place? Because protesting and demonstrating, it doesn't always work in every instance. Yeah, There are all kinds of ways to do direct action. And you have to think about what works now. When does it work? When is it appropriate? For instance, we teach through the King Center and I want to invite people. And I say a purposeful and not a selfish plug. 
to take our Nonviolence 365 online course so that you can learn more about the power of nonviolence to bring about social change, but also to help in your everyday interactions and, and addressing conflicts and making sure that you keep them from escalating to these extreme stages where they become violent. And so nonviolence has a full strategy of engagement, of knowing when it's proper to use direct action, because sometimes you can go through information gathering and find out there's not a problem or find out there is a problem. And once you educate everybody, you can sit down and approach that table in a way and get what you need in negotiation. Direct action's purpose is to create this tension to force people to get to a conversation. And if they have already been on one and it broke down to get them back to that conversation. But if we're not careful, we're gonna relegate direct action to nothing because it's gonna be so overutilized and watered down that people are gonna look at it as a joke. In the movement, when they went to direct action, the adversaries knew they were in trouble because they knew when to pull that trigger. I have to ask you this, just to be the devil's advocate here. Mm -hmm. Everything you're saying, it is righteous, it is beautiful, but I'm quite sure that you can even attest that decade after decade after decade, with often a lot of tangible change at the grassroots level, when it comes to systemic issues, when it comes to socioeconomic issues, when it comes to marginalized communities, uh, how much space do you have in your heart, even as a Christian woman, when you see the explosions of violence and what does Dr. Bernice A. King say to the fatigued generation that for decade after decade, they, they went through the protocol that looks more civil to our society, but still with not a lot of tangible change at the bottom level? What do you say to people that are tired of reading, tired of marching, that just want to take things into their own hands? and rise up against the systems, do you understand that? Or do you still hold on in 2022 to the same morals and principles that was happening in the 60s and 70s? First of all, it transcends time. That's the first thing I want to say to your last point. Do you still hold on to it? That'd be like, do you still hold on to your faith in Christ? He transcends any generation. But here's the issue. Anything that is worth winning requires discipline, period. Serena is who she is because she had the discipline to be persistent and consistent in her craft. With no offense to anyone, I don't know of a generation of young people collectively in terms of a critical mass who have truly studied and taken that study and applied it and utilized it and lived it consistently in terms of my father's nonviolent practice. No offense, but I haven't seen that. I've seen people take bits and pieces of what they read here or heard there and try to put it to practice. This is an entire training and discipline and, and strategy to get where we're trying to get. Other than that, go for it and see what your outcome will be. If you want to get to justice, you can't get there through an unjust means. Mm. If you want to get to peace, you can't get there through violence. Whatever the outcome is, if you're just seeking to destroy people, go for it. That's your goal. Go for it because that's what you'll get. But if you're looking for transformation and change, there is a consistent and a persistent way that it has to be done. And it's a daily practice. It is the daily right. part that You're is right. missing, You're and right. it is the truly studying. They have been picking pieces here and listening to all these different voices. Very few people that I know of have truly studied Dr. King's nonviolent philosophy and methodology in detail. Everybody that I know that has really studied it understands what I'm saying. But if you just take it a bit in pieces or you just read a website here, you have to go through the process, and you can't go one time. We have a trainer who used to be a captain, the St. Louis Police Force. He's a senior trainer. Um, he left the police force. And 
he believes in this heart. So he says every day I I read something related to Dr. King and this nonviolent philosophy because it's a it's a way of living. It's not a mm. tactic. The people you're talking mm. about have used things as tactical. It's not tactical. It's lifestyle. It's no different than us. You can't be a follower of Christ going to church. God bless you for going to church, but it's your lifestyle. What are you doing day to day to live yes. out the precepts yeah. and the teachings yes. and modeling the character and the nature of Christ in the earth? That's why Daddy and them was so strong, because there were enough of them who really embraced it consistently that broke some of these walls. And I'm afraid we've not had that kind of consistency since that time period. As I said, we've had moments here and there of people just applying protest. Nonviolence is not protest. It is not the equivalent. Nonviolence is a whole lifestyle. In fact, our definition is nonviolence is a love-centered way of thinking, acting, engaging and speaking that leads to personal, cultural and societal transformation. Yes, yes, yes. And I want you to know that I copy every word that you said. I I echo it. I am in full agreement. I I still would like to ask you though, what do we say to this generation's fatigue? I'm just asking and trying to find a bridge that may not be as academic this this reality of disparity and the conundrum of the daunting task of only having two cheeks. And after you've turned them both, what does the generation continue to do? So no, number I'm one, asking you can't a, do it individually. You can't do it individually. You, you are going to get knocked out and exhausted. Part of the fatigueness is it's been an individualistic approach. There's not been a strategy. They're tired because they're using their physical energy. But we've had so many movements, Dr. King. We, we've had so many movements over the last several decades. And, and what were and they based in? That's the first thing I asked. What were they based in? What did they study? Again, you don't get a LeBron without studying, practicing, and whatever. What did they do that amounts to the same thing? That's all I'm saying. You will get fatigued. Yes, you will yes, get knocked out of this thing. You will get tired. But the reality yes, is, something my mother said to me, she said, baby, the darkest hour is always before the dawn. What she was acknowledging is there's going to be dark times. There's going to be difficult times, you know, but there's also going to be a, a breakthrough. And if you're fatigued, it probably is because, one, the approach has been not the best approach in dealing with all of this. Everybody's concerned. Everybody wants to do something. But if we don't do it in a strategic manner, and if we don't do it in a collective, coordinated way, people are going to get tired. They're going to wear out and wear yes, down. Yes. And at this point, I would recommend if you're fatigued, pull out because it's not wise, mm. because all you're going to do is be destructive mm. at that point. Mm. You're just going to be destructive at that point. That, that's, that's real. You know, when I'm tired, I, I say crazy things when I'm tired. Yes, <laughs> you know yes, that is true. So I need to go rest. I'm saying to those who are tired and fatigued, go rest. Take a break. It is okay. It's all right. But I say to the rest, if you want the outcome that looks like just, equity, humane, peaceful, anything that you want to put there, you have no choice but to figure out the, the pathway to get there. And I'm saying the only pathway I know until somebody introduces another is the pathway of nonviolence that Dr. King taught us. And in order for me to get there, I got to learn it. I got to study it. And I got to collect my forces with other people. Because remember, it was a force back then. Rosa yes. Parks was not by herself. Yes. Martin was not by himself. Yes, Abernathy was yes, not by himself. Hosea was not by himself. Yes. Those people yes, were coordinated and connected. Ooh, and they strategized and together. And it was powerful. They were it very powerful. powerful. But Dr. King, you know what they also had? And I wasn't born in that period. Music. But like you, I am a student of the history of, of our people, our movement. They also had the power of the nucleus of the community, which was the black church. 
That's and what now I'm saying. That that power, but, but look at how hopeless and helpless she is in 2022. She's Very lost the respect of the com- she, she's lost the respect of the community. She's Don't lost the she's there. lost the respect <laughs> of the systems. She's lost so much of her voice, even to the next generation. How do we unify if the if the oracle of the movement? which was the black church, if her voice has been muffled, it's been contaminated, it's been deteriorated, and it has not always embraced the changing of times, relevance, while still being authentic to an unapologetic view that is also bibliocentric. So how do we find another oracle? What do we do without the voice of the church? You mean the institutional church? Because there's still a the voice. The institutional church. There's still the institutional a voice church. that has to be collected in the true church. That's the real issue. We have to find each other. Because there are those of us who understand the power of the Spirit of God to change and transform in the natural realm. And so I hear what you're saying. I don't know what to say about the institutional church. <laughs> I, uh, I might as well be honest. I might, I might as well be honest to the world because I'm tired of living um, Ooh, an untruth so that, that people so good. may assume. I have not been in the institutional church since I left New Birth in 2011. I've watched things online, but I heard the voice of the Lord. And this may be an interpretation people don't understand. I heard the voice of the Lord say, come ye out from among them and be ye separate, says the Lord. I don't know why, but I know at the time that I left, I I struggled earlier before everything that happened with new birth. I struggled uh, earlier with leaving because I knew my season was up in 2009, but I didn't know what to do because I grew up in the institutional church. Where was I going to go? What was my next? You know, I was wrestling with starting a ministry and starting a church and all of that kind of stuff. And so finally, when I did, you know, I I still was having that same battle. I started trying to go some other places. I cannot do Bernice A. King. I'm just saying me. I can't do institutional church. I love Jesus. So, so. I, I, I love what he says about what we are to be as the church. But I just can't, I can't do that anymore. I'm my daddy's daughter in another way. I saw how my father took the spirit of Christ into culture. Yes. And I just, I I don't know. So that's where I am right now. And there are many of me. There are many of me in the world, trust me, in this United States of America. Oh, let's unpack what you just said, because that is so powerful and profound about how why you no longer engage in institutional church. But what does that mean for you as a minister to not be a part of the institution? You know what, as far as I'm concerned, what I do at the King Center is ministry. Mm. Mm. As far as I'm concerned, because what my father teaches is grounded in the word of God. Mm. I had to come to grips with that because when I used to go out preaching, I'm saying, God, I'm supposed to represent you, but I'm struggling with this side with my daddy and all this kind of stuff. And God finally told me, he said, your father was my son Mm. and servant. And everything he did was grounded out of that word. And so I began to see, even as I read my father's words from time to time, you know, I would say, God, I could see, I could see the word of God coming through him and out of him, you know, as he was saying this or saying that. And so I had to reconcile the two because I felt very conflicted. And so I know even when we talk about the beloved community, you're really talking about the kingdom of God. But in a world where everybody is not Christed, everybody's not a Jesus person, you got to be able to communicate because at the end of the day, as the Holy Spirit taught me years ago and it freed me and I thank God for it. I was watching TBN one day. This was back in the um, 90s, probably about 95. And the congregation I was part of at the time was an inner city church. I was an assistant pastor and we used to send people out evangelism teams. And it was all about, you know, evangelizing people, bringing people, you know, to Christ. And And I struggled with that personally because it just didn't feel real to me. It felt forced. 
you know. Mm. And I don't know what they were talking about on TBN. I, I believe it was something around race or something. Had nothing to do with what I was struggling with, but in the middle of it, it was connected. The Holy Spirit just stopped me and arrested my attention and said, your job is to connect. My job is to convert. I said, mm. oh my God. You mean I don't have to feel the pressure of making sure these people change and transform and become Christians? Mm. No, mm. your job is to connect. My job is to convert. But he said, you got to connect in the spirit of Christ. And so that's the work that I do now, because I may not be able to say this person came to Christ or this person came to Jesus, you know, or this person is now Christian because of me. But I can firmly say without knowing that statistically that there are people because of the, the character nature that I've tried to display in any of the work that I've done that have come to Christ. I know that for a fact because I wasn't trying to convert. I was connecting out of the heart of Christ. Let me ask you this question. What change would you like to see in the institution of the church? Ooh, that's a loaded question. <laughs> you know it is. My God. <laughs> you know it is. You know it is. Oof. Well, yeah, she had to sit up, ladies and gentlemen. I want you to know that she's sitting up right now. She had to just take <laughs> take a seat and sit up a little bit. Yeah, I, I I think the first thing is we need to teach people more about L O V E, and I'm not talking about mamby pamby. You know, I'm not talking about sentimental. Mm. You know, I'm not talking about this weak expression. I, I, I'm talking about the, the love for God, those two commandments, love for God and love for neighbor as self. Mm. Love for God. We need, to, we need to unpack that because what we do spend a lot of time on is God loves you. Mm. But we never spend time on what does it look like to love God? Yes. Yes. Because when we love God, there's certain things we will do differently yes. in our day-to-day -day living yes. in this earth. So that's the first thing. We need to get out of all of these religious protocols and practices that we do. You know, some people have gotten away with some of some of some of this kind of stuff, you know. For example, um, for example, give me an example. Give me a tangible I mean, example. I mean, you know, protocols and practices. Um Dress codes, mm. Um, mm. you know, um, protocols and practices. Um, I, I don't want to touch the tithing issue, but I will say for me, I was delighted when I heard, and I know I'm going to come under attack by many pastors because you're in a pastoral church, you know, no, 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 all that kind of stuff. I was delighted when, when Pastor Dollar uh, made his statement. Whatever people think about it, how they feel like all those years he did, whatever, whatever, whatever. Because as far as I'm concerned, tithing is legislated. When Christ came, he liberated. Now, there's a principle that I do believe in, but giving. But giving is bigger than money. Giving is your time. Giving is your talent. Giving is your attitude. You know, and so there's a whole thing there. But anyway, I don't want to get into all of that. And ladies the and gentlemen, just so, just so those of you who may not know what he's referencing, Pastor Creflo Dollar, uh, the pastor of World Changes Church in Atlanta, made a statement about a couple of well, uh, months ago, right, that said that uh, he wanted to retract his theology on tithing. And because the foundation of his ministry historically has been about giving. And and so uh, he, he retracted yeah. And so he retracted some of his ideologies on tithing and said that tithing was not necessarily necessary, nor nor was it biblical. And so that's what she's referring to for those of you who may not know. So please continue, Dr. King. Please continue. Whether he said biblical or not, the point is, for me, I follow Christ. To me, I read the New Old Testament through the through the life of Christ, I read the New Testament because the Old Testament points to Christ, the New Testament points back to Christ. So the centrality of me, for me is, is Christ. And Christ came to fulfill the law. 
So yes. if you can't fulfill the law, why are we keeping people in bondage to the law? People should be at a whole nother place now. You're going to confine somebody to a 10%. You know, the Holy Spirit saying, I want you to give 40% today. Holy Spirit saying, I mm. understand. You ain't got it. It's okay. Give this. I tell you what, when you go out here, when you see that person, give that person a smile. It, we got to unpack giving because giving has become monetarily uh, for us. Mm. And that's that's unfortunate. Mm. But, but the mm. other thing is, you know, the church in Acts, the church in Acts, you know, um, everyone had, you know, and they distributed as they had. Okay. Where is that church? I, I, I don't, I don't know where it is. Um, but I'm not saying it's not, doesn't exist. I'm sure it exists somewhere in the face of the earth. Um, but I remember when we went through the mortgage crisis, I said, if we had modeled ourselves after the church of Acts, the church could have prevented so many people from losing their homes mm. at that time period. Wow. But we don't understand. We still don't understand giving. If we ever fully understood giving, even in the context of our culture and our laws in the nation, because Caesar has certain laws, tax laws. But if we understood the power of giving, I think we could revolutionize some things in the world, even of poverty you know, of lack, you know, of struggle, because most people end up in a season of struggle. It's not always they're just struggling the whole time. A lot of people, they end up in this season of struggle and there's nothing there. Where do they mm. go? They can't go to mm. the church because the church is not structured appropriately in terms of how do we create an institution where there is no lack? How do we mm. do that? How do we model that in the earth? And I do believe that Dr. King would attest to this as so, and so would I. What she and I are discussing, we are saying some churches, we're not making a definitive on every church. There no. are some churches in America that we love and appreciate their labor. It is an overall narrative of the climate of the American church and its impact and influence on the heart of Jesus within the culture. That is what Dr. King and I talking about, just in case anybody may be listening and thinking that we have an overall conclusive thought on every church in America. That's not no, what our heart I is. That's I not what church that. is. And, no, and, and, I can't and, speak to that. <laughs> and neither can I. But this is what I can speak to in all seriousness, though. In, in the seriousness of my conversation with you, Dr. King, the other question that is even deeper for me is this deep passion that you have for American Ninja Warrior. I need for you to tell me why you love that show and why you want to be on that show. <laughs> Who told you that? Oh, Lord, I got the wrong <laughs> notes. <laughs> Lord Jesus. <laughs> She got that ain't laugh. Did y'all hear that ain't laugh? She got that ain't laugh. I, I, I like, love it because because that's who I was <laughs> and wish I could be today. That's why I love it. <laughs> that's you why got I me. love it. Yeah. You got me. No, but I do love it. I do. I do love it. You're pretty good. I like I like how you did me like that. I that's love right. it. I love it. I love to see you smile. I think that you're such a legend and we automatically have in our minds these pictures of you and those like you that there's always a weight and a cross that you carry daily. And it has been such a joy to see your smile. You have a beautiful smile. And it's just Thank been you. a joy to hear your laughter and just the hope in your heart. <laughs> it's just very encouraging because you have seen you, you, you've seen a multiplicity of experiences in life. And so to be able to uh, have this opportunity to tap into you and to just uh, just just talk through this 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 season of life with you has been such a such a great honor. Please tell us before you leave what the King Center is for those who may not know and how the community can support the work that you all do. So in a nutshell, it's the official living memorial to the life, work, and legacy of, of my father. And I like to say now my parents, because my mother's no longer with us. Um, and, you know, our vision is really about that beloved community where injustice ceases and love prevails. And we do that by empowering people to create a just, humane, equitable, and peaceful world 
by applying and utilizing my father's philosophy and methodology of nonviolence. You know, so we, we do education and training around nonviolence. We have a Students with King where young people from schools across the nation can come and experience more about Dr. King behind the scenes of Dr. King as a person and some of the things that they're just not going to find, especially today, unfortunately, find in, in textbooks. We also have beloved community talks where we have these, you know, very um, interesting, sometimes courageous conversations, sometimes crossing the divides and having conversations with people who are on two separate sides of, of, of an issue, not to create an argument, but to try to elevate an understanding at another level so that we can all find better pathways to move forward um, as, as a nation of diversity. So I encourage people to go to kingcenter.org, look for our King Center Institute online, look for our beloved community talks, you know, Students with King, our beloved community leadership academy. And I also just published a book called It Starts With Me, a children's book based around a character called Amora. And she's teaching young people how to be loved, how to open your hearts and minds and allow oh, love dope. to drive that's your great. thoughts and your actions um, and your words. That is words. great. Congratulations. Um, yeah. Thank you. It's really exciting. And, and Amora is going to show up some more, you know, as a character. We hope to do a cartoon at some point, et cetera, around Amora. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. But that's the King Center in, in a nutshell. We really see ourselves as helping to fill the gap of preparing people to deal with injustice in a way that can bring about just outcomes. Uh, and as I said, it ain't easy. You're right. Mm-hmm. You, you get tired mm-hmm. and you get weary. But when you get to that place, you got to push the pause, you know, because if yes, not, you can become self-destructive. That was a good word. That you know what I'm saying? Word. You can become Great word. self-destructive, um, not just Great outwardly word. destructive. You can become self-destructive. And if I can leave people with anything, my mother says struggle is a never-ending process. Freedom is never mm. really won. You earn it and win it in every generation. And that's what mm. I'm talking about. You, This earning and winning, if they win one season, they can't count on that season to win the next season. They still got to be persistent. Amen. They got to practice. They got to discipline Amen. themselves. They got to grow. They got to further develop. That's Nonviolence is all of that. And don't ever forget that about nonviolence. Nonviolence wins over, not just your adversary. You're trying to win those people on the sidelines, the people who are on the edge. Should I get involved or should I not? The people people call, I don't like using the word ally, but I'm going to use it for this conversation. The people that you call allies, they will join you, but they're not going to join you in a fi- in a violent movement. They're just not. That is, the proof is amen. there. The, the, the evidence and data is there about yes. that. Nonviolent yes. movements are the most powerful and transformative in the world. Ladies and gentlemen, she is a lawyer, author, minister, bowler, DJ, card <laughs> shark, breaker of men's hearts. <laughs> while she gets her, while she gets Don't her grass cut. Don't say that, cause they may not come my way. What's, what's up with that? <laughs> and, and warm she, men's and, hearts, warms men's hearts. Make warms men's hearts. Meal. Come on, somebody. What you gonna? <laughs> what you gonna? What you gonna cook your new Joe? What you I'm gonna, gonna cook your I'm new gonna Joe? Ask, I'm gonna ask Joe what he wants, Ooh. and that's what I'm gonna cook. <laughs> if you ever cooked a meal for somebody and they Come ate it, it's like, that ain't what I wanted. I didn't like that. <laughs> Come on, Joe. Come on, Joe. We did it, Joe. Joe, we did it. And I want y'all to know that what I love most about this podcast, she did not break a beat during the whole time they was cutting her yard. Baby, let me tell you something. That lawn, baby, that lawnmower, baby, that lawnmower, baby, that lawnmower was in the background, and I she didn't break a sweat. I didn't know you Listen, heard it. I, I, I used to cut yours, baby girl. I know what that was. So you got like, sensitivity to that sound. Come yeah, on now, yeah. come on now. So Kirk, you I have let one me thing. Some, Tim, what you need? I got you. I want you to teach me how to play the keyboards again, cause I played them growing okay. up. I played the okay. keys, piano. I would be honored to. Yeah. I would be, and you know what else I'd be honored to? To do? Give me an age limit right now. 
on what that future Joe should be. And I'm going to find somebody that can teach the piano, play the piano, and don't mind doing a little duet with you. Give me an age bracket. Do you like tall? Do you like short? What's the oldest he oh, can no, be? Tall, What's tall, the youngest? Tall, because I have tall, tall, bi- built, not not Uh-oh. not like overly okay. football, like the medium okay. size but, football. But you, tall. You like a look fine, man. You want want to want a fine man, nice uh, man in shape. Oh, you 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 talking? You talking? I'm anywhere from you know, I, you know, I got a little uh, cougar in me, so you know, hey! for, forty five. <laughs> 45 to 55. Oh, this is so I, good. I don't this like so old You know, because I'm into anti-aging stuff, so you're going to see me get a little younger. <laughs> she said she got a little cougar in her. And y'all, she's yes, blushing. Yes. What I think is so cute, she is really blushing, y'all. This is this has blessed my heart, y'all. Wait till I see you in person. You're going to hug on me. This is so good. So I know oh what I'm going to be looking God. for. Kurt, he who finds me finds a good thing. Yes, sir. So I'm going to be looking out for a little, I'm going to be looking out for a little young tender thing that's about 45, 50 years old, nice and shaped, got all his teeth, and we're going to be looking oh, for yeah. him. So if you know who you are, come on and, and he's just healthy. Uh, slip. Health conscious. Healthy. She don't want you oh, coughing oh, while mm-mm. y'all kissing. <laughs> she don't want you coughing while y'all kissing. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please show some love. To Dr. Bernice <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'm so proud of you. Thank you so much. This was so good. So thank you all so much for listening to Good Words, man. I hope you are enjoying yourself. I hope you're, man, enjoying the journey that you're taking with your boy. And if you are, please do me a favor. Leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Can you do that for me? I'd appreciate it. And don't you forget, you can never go too far or you can't come back home. Good Words with Kirk Franklin is a collaboration between For Your Soul Entertainment, Sony Music Entertainment, RC Inspiration, and something else. Produced by Janicia Francis with senior producer Danielle Jones-Wesley. Associate producers are Danya Abdel-Hamid, Rachel Chodar, and Kyra Asabe-Bansu. It's executive produced by Ron Hill, Reese Brooks, Sarita Wesley, Tom Koenig, Hybrid Agency, and myself, good boy, Kirk Franklin. This episode was mixed by Calvin Bailiff, and special thanks to Charlie Yador and Steve Ackerman.